Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Again, God, grateful uh, to be gathered together um, as your people. Lord, um, I have to confess, Father, that um, I have walked in here far too many Sundays, um, Lord, not really recognizing uh, the depth of the things that are taking place here. God, the ways in which you are knitting your people together, the ways in which you are using our gifts to bless one another, the ways in which you are communicating your grace to us, the ways in which you are even applying your grace to us at your table. Um, and God, I just pray, Father, that as uh, as I continue to grow and mature, as we continue to grow and mature together, Lord, that you would lead us into a greater understanding, a greater appreciation, Lord, of the fullness um, that you intend to fill us with in these times. And Lord, that our eyes would be wide open to what you would have us see, that our ears would be wide open to what you would have us hear this morning. And Lord, that all of it um, would be from you, Lord, not in any way confused by uh, my uh, poor speech or by uh, a confusing rhetoric, Lord, but that you would just be helpful and gracious to us in all of it. Lord, we rest in and rely upon you for all things, even this word, um, Lord, that you intend to deliver to us now. So God, be with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, we've done it this way uh, the past several weeks, and so we're going to do it this way again. We're going to uh, sort of survey the entirety of the text, and then we'll kind of walk through what I think are the, uh, the applicable points for us in particular this morning. But so again, we've been in this smaller section of 1 Corinthians, and for the last uh, two chapters, really, this being the third, um, Paul has been dealing with the use of spiritual gifts, Right? And in, in chapter 12, essentially what we come to find out is that there are questions about what the exercise of the spiritual gifts should look like among God's people. Um, what was intended, Paul, Paul says, to, to be something that was uniting, something that enabled us, empowered us to serve one another, right? That being the reason the gifts were given, those things instead in Corinth were being used to classify one another, Right? to create essentially a religious social hierarchy, right? That looked very similar to the social hierarchy of Corinth itself. And so much like the rest of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul is essentially saying, you look more Corinthian than Christian. And he's inviting them to look more Christian than Corinthian. And so what he says in chapter 12 is that, look, these gifts that you've been given were never meant to divide and to classify you. They, they were, in fact, meant for the opposite. They were meant to unite you and to encourage and upbuild you together as one people. And Paul essentially says that the, the most important ingredient in all of that, the thing that should most inform the way we use our gifts in the body is the concept, the principle of love. Right, This others-oriented, others-directed care, concern, love, that that was to be the guiding light for the way that the Corinthian people interacted with one another, particularly in the use of their spiritual gifts. And now Paul's going to narrow down. He's, going to, he's only going to talk about two spiritual gifts this morning. He's going to talk about prophecy and tongues. And some of you walked in this morning and you were like, not today. But we're going there. We are. We're going to talk about prophecy and we're going to talk about tongues. And I don't know about you, but I'll just be very honest. From, from my tradition, 
both of these, uh, we were more afraid of these than, than welcoming of them. And so just know that this is, this is a leap for me too, and yet I believe that every word of God is useful, profitable. It's good for teaching. It's good for building us up. It's good for exhorting us. It's calling us into lives of greater faithfulness, better understanding of all that God has for us, and the gifts of prophecy and tongues. Paul is very clear in this section, are indeed gifts from God to be used and experienced together. And so let's find out how Paul would have us to pursue these things. Now, in verse 1, essentially Paul sums up what he said in the past two chapters. He says this, pursue love, right? So where the Corinthians would have elevated the spiritual gifts above love, Paul says, no, 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 first things first, pursue love. And then he says, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This is where things might get a little weird. Verse 2, he goes on to say this, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And so immediately, Paul puts before, uh, before the Corinthians these two distinct gifts, prophecy and tongues. Now, I don't have time to go into all of the background, but essentially all we need to know is that both of these gifts would have been especially revered in a place like Corinth. Prophecy being something that was uh, sort of emanated this air of wisdom in a, in a culture that greatly valued wisdom, that would have been elevated, right? That would have been something that people looked to and appreciated, maybe more so than the gift of hospitality or evangelism or whatever other gift you could think of. And then this, the gift of tongues, right? This idea that we would experience God in such a way that we would be led in our spirit to utter things in language that is unintelligible for those in our midst, right? That, that someone is experiencing uh, the spiritual reality of God, the spiritual presence of God in such a way that they would be moved to speak unintelligibly. Again, something that the Corinthians would have looked at and said, okay, there's, a, there's something uh, extra spiritual going on with, with that person in their spirit. And Paul is going to take these two that the Corinthians would have been tempted to place above all of the others, and he's going to explain, one, why they should choose one over the other, and two, how both of them should be governed in the context of the church. Which is why he goes on to say this, verse 3, on the other hand, right, so as opposed to the one who speaks in tongues, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So here's essentially why Paul says, you should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, and you should especially desire that you would prophesy. He says, here's why. Those who prophesy, those who come into a Sunday gathering with a word for the church, they are serving others around them. Their word is not primarily for themselves. It is for the others in the room, right? They build up the church. 
But those who come into a Sunday gathering and they speak unintelligibly, they speak in the Spirit, they utter mysteries in the Spirit, as Paul would say, they build up themselves. And so again, Paul is only continuing this train of thought that really began all the way back in chapter 8, which is that our involvement with one another should be predicated not upon what we can receive from one another, but rather what we can give to one another. That that's what love is, right? To think primarily about the good of others. And so that's all that Paul is continuing to say. Listen, if you're going to pick a spiritual gift, pick the one that is most beneficial to others. Choose the one, pray for the one, I should say, because we don't get to pick them, you know, like uh, out of a box or anything like that, right? Pray for the one that would most benefit the people around you. Now listen, this is not Paul denigrating the gift of tongues, right? Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says this, Now I want you all to speak in tongues. I want you all to speak in tongues. So here's the thing. Paul desires for every member of that congregation to experience God and his gifts in such a way that they would be given the gifts of tongues. Right? That they would utter mysteries in the Spirit. That they would experience that gift of God. Why? Because it's a gift. Right? Is there, is there any spiritual gift that that we would say, God, I, thanks, but no thanks, right? Like, did you leave the receipt? Can I take it back to Target? What's their policy? No, of course not, right? If it's a gift from God, it's a good thing. And so Paul desires that everyone in the congregation would experience the gift of tongues, although the reality is that they like, likely all won't, right? Because as we learned in chapter 12, God apportions what he wills to whom he wills according to his will, right? But nevertheless, Paul says that so that, so that we know. This is not, it's not that I'm against tongues. It's not even that I'm against building yourself up. Building yourself up is not a bad thing, right? Growing up into maturity in Christ is not a bad thing. Experiencing the gifts of God in our personal relationship with God is not a bad thing. It's just not the thing that our gatherings are about. It's just not what this time is about. Which is why he continues in verse 5 to say this. I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Why? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So again, Paul says, listen, prophecy better than tongues because it builds the church up, unless someone speaks in a tongue and there's an interpreter among you so that it builds up the church. So again, forget about the, the details for a second, and let's just see the overarching principle that Paul is trying to communicate to us. When we gather together, these times are not about us. It's not about you. It's about the body coming together, loving and serving one another in Jesus' name for God's glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this time is about. And so Paul just continues to explain his argument by, by using a real-world example, right? He says, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? 
basically says, if I only speak in tongues, then I haven't done anything to benefit you. So, so what then? Verse 7, if even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And so he uses a, a real-world example, right? He says, listen, if, if you were to put your CD into the CD player, or we don't have those anymore, so if you were to hit play on Apple Music or whatever it is, and it just played one tone, it was just, right? What would that communicate to you? Nothing. Or that something was wrong with your Apple Music subscription or Spotify, whatever. Right? Or if you were to go to, say, um, a, a, a gathering of people and someone started to play a trumpet, and again, it was just one tone, you wouldn't really know how to respond, would you? But if someone started playing taps, you would know, right, that it's a reverent moment. You would know that, that something has taken place, right? Uh, someone has given their life for their country, and so honor is due, and so on and so forth, right? We, we take our cues from that, right? It becomes intelligible to us. Well, in the same way, Paul says, when we gather together, if we speak only in tongues, then Nobody knows how to respond. Nobody knows how to react. Is this something that we should be encouraged by, as Paul says? Or is it something that we should be consoled by? Is it something that we should be exhorted by? Is it something that we should be reverent of or terrified of? What, like, what, what's happening? And so he goes on to say this in verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker, a foreigner to me. So what does Paul say? Right, If we don't understand one another, it is as if we were foreigners. And so what Paul doesn't want is for the family to feel like foreigners, right? This is supposed to be a family, not a collection of foreigners. And so he says this in verse 12. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And so again, Paul is making the case that not that we shouldn't experience these things, but that again, they can, first of all, they can be governed, and second of all, they should be governed by love for the brethren, love for brother and sister. So I can pray in my spirit, and I will, I'll do that, Paul says, but I'm going to pray in my mind also. I'm going to sing in the Spirit, right? I'm going to experience all of the ecstasy of worshiping God and entering into His communion by the blood of Jesus through our sung worship. And at the same time, I'm going to say words that mean something. 
I'm going to sing words that say something, that communicate something intelligible about who God is. I'm not just going to, whoa, whoa, whoa. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? And this is maybe even more significant. Right? Paul says, not only does it make your family feel as though you are foreign to one another when you can't understand what you're saying, But imagine the outsider, right? Imagine the person who doesn't believe. Imagine the person who doesn't know Jesus, who hasn't heard of Jesus, who's never heard of his grace and mercy extended to them in his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father, right? What if? What about that person? How can that person say amen if they don't understand what you are saying? How can they, the word amen, meaning let it be so, how, how can they say? How can they agree with you? Essentially, how can they come to know Jesus if they can't understand you? Verse 17, because it's not about the quality of the thanks, right? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Humble brag. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now this is where Paul does something... Um, incredible um, that if we didn't have a concordance, meaning if we didn't have sort of an understanding of where Paul is referencing scriptures from the Old Testament, we would miss this. But this is an Old Testament quote from Isaiah chapter 28, and it says, by the people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And essentially what's happening here in Isaiah 28 is God comes to these people. And as a sign of judgment, delivers good news to them, but in a language that they can't understand. As a sign of judgment. Says, Look, the good news is among you, but you... You don't understand. And so the point that then Paul goes on to make throughout the rest of the chapter, or not the rest of the chapter, the rest of this section, when he says that tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers but for believers, he's making this very simple case. In all of that complex language, in all of the complicated not believer, unbeliever, this believer, that believer, right? <laughs> in, in all of that, essentially the argument that Paul is making is this, that God's words, right, his word, his gospel, when it is delivered intelligibly, meaning it can be understood, that's what God uses to convict, 
right? That's what it says in verse 24. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul is saying, listen, not only if you want to serve your brothers and sisters whom you should love with all the tender care and affection that Jesus himself has shown to you, even beyond that, if you want to see others, foreigners, become family, if you want to see unbelievers become believers, speak intelligibly and prophetically about the work of Jesus so that people might be encouraged, consoled, and built up. You know what's amazing about all of this? To think for a second, if we just kind of draw ourselves up out of 1 Corinthians 14 for one second. If unintelligible words were a sign of judgment in Isaiah 28, right, meaning that God was not going to deliver them, then what do you think intelligible words are? If one is a sign of judgment, wouldn't the other be a sign of blessing? Wouldn't that maybe shed a little bit of light on the glory of the first chapter of John? Right? Do you remember what it says? In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Are you with me here? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then what does it say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the intelligible Word. Jesus is the means by which we can understand the glories of God in heaven. He is the means by which we know righteousness. He's the means by which we know salvation. He's the means by which we are called to account, convicted, and our hearts are disclosed so that we might fall on our face in worship of God and proclaim that God is truly among us. That's Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, there's this wonderful, wonderful scripture um, where the author of this book um, says these words. He's talking about a kingdom that can't be shaken. He says this, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then he says this in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that, guess what, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain murders his brother, right? Abel tells us in Genesis chapter 4 that his blood cried out for vengeance. 
And in Hebrews 12, what we come to find out is not only that Jesus is the word, the intelligible word that we can see, know, understand, be cut to the heart by God himself so that we might worship God through our unveiling, our beholding of Jesus, but his sacrificial death, his pouring out of his blood speaks to us also, and that it speaks to us a better word than the blood of Abel. Where Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, Jesus' blood cries out atonement. Jesus' blood cries out, it is finished. It speaks a better word to us. And then in Luke 24, Jesus himself says these words. After his resurrection, he appears to the disciples, and this is what he says. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. Brothers and sisters, I know we say it every week. Right? Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that we see the person and work of Jesus most clearly revealed. Right? That's how most of you hear it every week. Man, do you are you are you catching why right now? The intelligible word that Jesus delivered us in his person, in his blood shed for us. And in his word written down for us, his words compiled for us, both in all of the words written before him, in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and in this New Testament that we're studying even this morning, that he's communicating to us intelligibly in a way that we can understand so that we might fall on our face before him and worship him, declare that he is actually here among us. That's what we're doing here. That's why you're here this morning. You might not have thought that walking in. That might not have been chief of what was on your mind. But brothers and sisters, that is what is intended for the gathered people of God. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think there's a few things we should come to understand from this text this morning. One is this, and hear this not in an accusatory way, hear this as a confession of my own. All too often, we come into this room, and the primary thought on our mind is, what am I going to get out of this today? In fact, one of the most common reasons I hear for people leaving any church, not just this church, but any church, right, is I'm not being fed there, right? I'm not being served or built up or whatever sort of combination of words communicates that same idea. Brothers and sisters, if we're coming into this room that way, Paul says we're in the wrong. Paul says we are to come here looking for opportunities to use our gift, our gifts for one another's benefit. 
Because I don't know about you, but man, I, I just don't come in here a lot of Sundays going, I'm like, like I'm hunting for opportunities, right? To encourage someone, to build someone up, to love someone, to serve someone, right? I would hope that this text would encourage us to that, whether it be in a prophetic word or prayer in tongues or any other gift, but that we would begin to shift our thinking that way. Because you know what happens? You know what's odd about that? Is that if we come in that way into this place, if we're all coming with eyes to serve, all coming with eyes to encourage, to build up, guess what? Everybody gets built up and encouraged. Who'd have thought? And the second thing is this. We should speak clearly and unequivocally about Jesus every time we gather. My job is not to get up here and give you five tips to better relationships. It's just not. And while I think that applying the text is important, learning how to follow Jesus in the context of everyday life is important, the reality is that we can't follow Jesus if we don't know Jesus. So my one intent and purpose for you during these times, my only hope and desire, and if there have been times where I've failed at this, please, I repent to you. My only hope and desire is that you would see Jesus, that he would be intelligible to you, right? That you would be able to understand him insofar as our feeble human minds are able to. That you would behold him and his extravagant love for you. Not just because that's what you need, but it's what, it's what I need too. Jesus will always be the better word. Jesus will always speak a better word than any word that you may have heard this week. And so listen, some of us may have come in the room this morning and we've got a lot of words in mind that were spoken over us. And some, for some of you, they may have been negative, right? Maybe like, you're, you're a failure, um, you're a sinner, um, you really dropped the ball here, right? I wish you'd never been born. You're more trouble than you're worth. And some of us, on the other hand, right, it might, it might have been totally different, right? Hey, good job, chief, you know? You're really successful, you're really rich. You've really done well for yourself. You can kind of hear the envy dripping behind the encouragement. But you know what? My guess is that no matter which group you find yourselves in, or even if you've been served a cocktail of both of them, the reality is that all of you are still looking to hear one word. Accepted, beloved, and you know what? That's the better word this morning.
The better word this morning is that in your own language, God has from before time ordained that you would be in this room hearing his word explained to you intelligibly about the glorious work of Jesus on your behalf, his shed blood for your sins, his victorious resurrection over your sin and over your future death and his glorious ascension to the right hand of the father of all of the universe who now upholds everything that is seen and unseen that he himself loves and accepts you because of Jesus. That's the better word. And so my question for you this morning is, maybe that's the first time you've heard it. Will you believe it? Maybe it's the millionth time you've heard it. Will you believe it? Will you receive that into your heart this morning?